listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Eric Barton. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Thank you, Tyler and Caitlin. Uh, as they have mentioned, my name is Eric Barton, and I get to be the pastor of the downtown campus. And I'm delighted that you're here. I want to also extend my warm and sincere welcome. We would love to know that you're here. We would love to help you get connected to the local church. And if it's not this church, then we really do mean this. We want to help you get connected to a local church somewhere. That phone number that we put on screen is also the same phone number that you can use if you want to text in questions uh, about the sermon, during the sermon, and then uh, usually by Tuesdays, Matt and Mike and I will sit down and uh, film a little snippet trying to answer some of those questions. We'll put that out on social media because apparently that's what people younger than me do. And so we're going we're gonna to try to take part of that. I am delighted that you're here. I want to I start by uh, reliving a, a memory. Way back when I was in the eighth grade, oh yeah, when I was in the eighth grade, I had a little girlfriend, and the next question that follows is, well, wait, now, wait a minute, you've got an eighth grader, can he have a girlfriend? No. I've told him he cannot have a girlfriend until he's 35. I figure if you can't be president of the United States, you don't have no business with a girlfriend either, so he's got a little bit of a way, but I, back in those days, a kinder, gentler time, I had a girlfriend, I was in the eighth grade, and one day, after school, my parents gave me permission to go see her. Oh, sweet day in the morning. Jesus, you may be coming back, but not today. <laughs> I got places to be. And they gave me permission to go and see her the way I usually did, um, to ride my little you know, BMX bike down this street, turn right, go about mm, 12 blocks, turn another right, and there was her house. Her house really could not have been more direct uh, on a bicycle route. It could not have been more straight. But you also, those of you that know me, know I am directionally challenged. Like if this place were suddenly to burst into flames, I have no idea where the stairs are. It's clearly marked. You can get there. I'm dead, all right? But I figured this is, this is such an important deal. I'm going to get to go after school. I'm going to get there quicker. So I did what every eighth grade boy did back in those days. I got through with my minimal amount of homework in the eighth grade, and I, I put on my best outfit, you know, the, uh, the gray sweatpants and the uh, light blue hand-me-down hunt club polo from JCPenney with the collar up and my two Jimmy Connors uh, sweatbands because, you know, Jimmy Connors, man. And I took off, and I said, I'm going to run. I'm not going to follow the prescribed route. I've got a better idea. I'm going to cut the corners because I know if I just go all the way up that way and then that way and this way, it's going to take too long. Man, I'm going to cut the corners. I'm going to go up the alleyways and around the houses. And so I took off like a shot. And I got to Mr. W.R. Bowles' house. W.R., by the way, his name was literally and actually W.R. Bowles. It stood for nothing. On the birth certificate, it said W.R. And he had that face that Mr. Bowles always had on his front porch. And I went around him, and I hopped over his fence, and I hopped over his back fence. Here I go. And I passed the Maddox's house. And Jennifer Maddox, to this day, still stalks me on Facebook. Kind of creepy. I passed the next street. There's Whitney Sykes. Hi, Eric. Want to play? No, no time for this. I got to go. So here I go. I'm going to keep going. I got to the fourth street. This is, a, this is a street called Inverness, and there's Don and Marilyn Brown's house. And I knew about this house because their son, Zach, was one of my friends. I hopped their fence, and ooh, there it was, a big black dog named Nasty. Now, that should have been a clue. 
That should have been a primer and a warning for things to come, but I heeded it not. I knew nasty, and I said, no, no, nasty, you stay. I got to go, and I hopped the fence, and I kept going. I was about three streets away when it occurred to me, I am on the verge of greatness. I'm going to get there faster than I've ever gotten, but to do so, I'm going to have to do something that nobody my age had ever attempted so far as I knew. I was going to cut the corner and go over the Watkins fence. You see, J.T. Watkins was one of the influential bankers in my little hometown, and his house looked like it. J.T. Watkins, uh, well, he, he and his wife, whose name was Mrs., I think, also went to our church, and both of them were the kinds of folks back in those days that they both wore their pants up to about right here, okay? And uh, I was terrified of the Watkins. I thought, anybody who's got pants that high, that's terrifying. And they had this backyard fence that was like a solid cinder block wall that in reality was probably only about six feet tall. But to me, it was like Fortress Masada. Like you couldn't get in there. But back in my day, there was these things called dumpsters. And there was no recycling. And it was glorious. There was dumpsters. This is where the well-to-do kept their trash behind their houses. Not like us. We had to put our trash right out in the front. So that all the neighbors could say, oh, look at there, the Bartons, they ruined another slip and slide. But these folks, they had dumpsters behind their houses in the alley. And so I think to myself, self, I'm going to hop up on that dumpster, I'm going to get up on that wall, I'm going to jump down, I'm going to hook them across the other side. And I'm going to be at her house in no time. But I catastrophically miscalculated the distance of the descent from the top of that cinder block fence. And I jumped down, but gravity took hold, and the larger bit of my weight mass, which is my head, for those of you that are looking very closely now, went down, and I fell straight on my chest, knocked the wind out of me, but fortunately, there was something there that broke my fall, and it was, how shall I say, well, it was the finest work of a St. Bernard named Pumpkin. <laughs> this happened to be the area where Pumpkin apparently went to read the paper and have a cup of coffee, because it was everywhere. And I'm chest down in it. And now, you know what? Listen, if I hadn't been wearing those Jimmy Connors wristbands, I would have sprained my wrists. But oh no, Jimmy, <laughs> Jimmy that day was on point. That's when it hit me. And when I say it hit me, I mean pumpkin. Pumpkin saw me and came bounding over this giant St. Bernard. There was no barrel of brandy in this case. And pumpkin jumped on me and licked me like I was a Tootsie Pop. Just cleaned me, freckle removal. It was. Incredible. And I'm screaming. I'm freaked out. I'm covered in goo. I'm terrified of this big dog. I'm freaking And then I hear the door open. And out came Ms. Watkins. Here she comes. And she got that dog off of me finally. And she offered me to come inside and help me get cleaned up because she knew who I was. And I, listen, I, I did what you did. Or I did what you would do. I said, no, I got to go. I got some place to be. And so I took off out her back gate. And I ran the rest of the way to this girl's house. Now I'm about 30 minutes late. And I ring the doorbell, and her dad comes to the door, and he looks at me covered in, you know, feces and spit and my own tears and probably some grass stain on my best pair of sweatpants. And he's like, oh, man, oh, what, what is that smell? And I said, pumpkin spice. <laughs> no, I didn't really. That would have been funny. I wasn't that clever back then. I didn't say pumpkin spice. I was like, well, uh, hey, is she here? Can I, you know? And he's like, no, you were supposed to be here 30 minutes ago. We've already started dinner, and you can't come in. Oh, man. 
So I had to walk back, not through all the neighborhoods, alleys, and yards again. No, no. Now I have to walk down the long street called Broadmoor. It's called Broadmoor for a reason because it's broad and everyone drives on it more. And now they're all seeing me soaked in goo and mess and filth and just sadness and dejection and utter loserness. And I walk back home. And it occurred to me then, as it occurs to me now, and as unfortunately I have repeated vignettes like that for these last several decades, my own presumption and arrogance led me to believe that I knew better and that I could accomplish it faster in my own way. Even though my parents had given me permission to do it in a certain way, I thought that I knew better. And it makes me ask the question all the time as I think back about that now ruined poor little light blue hunt club polo with the collar up and the brown stain all over it. How many other things have I made a mess of? Have you ever been there? Have you ever tried to take a shortcut? Maybe there was a thing that you knew that God actually wanted for you one day, but instead you presumed. You said, God's not moving quite quickly enough. I'll give him a little nudge. You ever been there? Not only did I make a mess of my own life, but I realized in hindsight that I also caused a great deal of inconvenience to a whole lot of people around me simply because I wasn't willing to wait on the ones who had made the plans for me. Which brings me to our big idea for the morning, sort of our walkout wisdom for our time together in the text. And it goes like this. It's really quite simple, and it's uh, not terribly profound, but I think it's very impactful. It goes like this. There are no shortcuts. I believe when we open God's word, as God's people, in the power of God's spirit, that he speaks to us in the present tense. And one of the things I want us to take away from this text, because it's been impactful for me all week long in preparation, is there are no shortcuts. So we're going to look at this passage, and I'm going to see if I can tease this out. Please open with me in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 24. 1 Samuel chapter 24. Now, if you're visiting, I want to say again, welcome. We have been in a sermon series this spring semester at all three of our campuses, discussing the life of David, this poet, uh, warrior, shepherd, and king. And all of the narratives, all the stories, all the great vignettes of David are not merely a collection of fables and morals that we're supposed to insert ourselves into to try to learn how to live our lives better. It's not it. All of these narratives of King David are preparing us for a better David who will come, the son of David, who is the son of man, who is the son of God who will come. All of the narratives of David are making us want more. Like yeah, that, that calls to my need for nobility, but I'm left wanting more. Now we know that all of these stories are about Jesus because Jesus himself says so. In the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24, verse 27, Jesus is walking along the road to Emmaus with a couple of discouraged disciples. And he says in verse 27, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. It's all about me. And when you try to read Old Testament passages and make them about you, you are tearing yourself apart. You are chaining yourself down. We are to understand the Old Testament in light of what Jesus says about it, that it's pointing us to him. Now, thus far in our sermon series, we've covered a lot of the life of David. He's been anointed king. Saul has been rejected. David is about 20 years old, and he's on the run. Saul is pursuing him all the time, will not give up. And David has to assemble this sort of band of merry men, this dirty dozens that are following him around. And it's cat and mouse. Saul's chasing him. David's running. Saul's chasing him. David's running. Last week, we literally saw 
Saul pursued David up a mountain. David's going down the other side when the Philistines attack another area of the kingdom. And Saul has to go and fight off the Philistines, the bad guys, the enemies of God, the enemies of the nation of Israel. And that brings us now finally to chapter 24 of 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 24. I'll begin reading and then we'll just sort of unpack this. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Now, this is interesting. If I'm writing this story, I'm writing this story to fill in the details that I care about. I want to know what happened to the Philistines. I want to know, did Saul have success? Was Saul beaten back? How did the battle go? What went on? Did Saul grab a hold of the Philistines and just beat them counterclockwise? What happened? We're not told because that's not the point of the story. I want those details. The writer's unconcerned because the writer has a point, and that is to point us forward to a better David who will come later. Saul has apparently fought off the Philistines, apparently had some success despite his torment from a wicked spirit. He has some success, and he's told, behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Now, En Gedi is this uh, really marvelous place. You can still visit it today. David, we know from chapter 23, was in the west, closer to the Mediterranean coast, near the Philistine cities, on a place near a place called Maon, uh, just north of and or around the Yeshimon, which is the desolate wilderness. And now he's having to go east, close to the Dead Sea. This place, En Gedi, means the spring of the goat or the spring of the kid. Um, you can still see it today with these wonderful limestone caves, freshwater springs, and there really are these little ibex goats running all over the place, eating acacia trees and uh, drinking the fresh water. In fact, I think I have a picture of En Gedi. You can see En Gedi, what it looks like today. There it is, me showing way too much skin. I apologize. We're teaching in one of the freshwater um, springs there at En Gedi. And there are hundreds and hundreds of caves and springs and waterfalls in En Gedi in the middle of the wilderness that goes right next to the western edge of the Dead Sea. All right, so this is where David is going to go and try to take refuge. All right, verse 2. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goats, rocks. So he's going to follow him, and he's going to go to this, uh, this sheepfold pens where they keep their sheep. This is where Saul has gotten to so far. And verse 3 is a very important verse. And he came to the sheepfolds by the way, where there was a cave. And Saul went in <laughs> to relieve himself. Now, Here's the deal. That's a sweet, sanitized English version. It's not what the text says. In the Hebrew, it's very descriptive. It says, and Saul went in to cover his feet. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> Saul goes in to cover his feet. This is going to be a while, all right? He's got a little copy of Hebrews Life, and he's got his bathrobe, and he's got a coffee mug. He's going to be there a spell. And so what the deal is, is the man goes in, takes off his robe, lays it out, gets two rocks, and he's, he's going to be comfy for a while. We're going to talk about it because it's in Scripture. This is not the thing we normally like want to have a small-time devotional about, but this is what's going on. This is real life. You don't make this stuff up. If you're making this stuff up, you don't include this part. And there's Saul, and he's covering his feet. What a great expression. You can use that one at home, by the way. Okay, so the end of verse 3 is really sort of the buildup of the tension of the passage. Here we go, verse 3. And Saul went in to cover his feet. Now, it just so happened of all the caves of En Gedi, and there are hundreds of them. 
It just so happened that David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. <laughs> That's incredible. Like, you're thinking, for sure, really? I gotta go. I'm gonna leave everyone else by themselves. I'm gonna scurry up this rock, go into a cave where I can have some peace and quiet. Little do you know, there's 600 people in the stall. That's a bad day. We know from chapter 23 that there are 600 dudes with David, and they're all crouched back in the deep recesses of the cave, and you just kind of have to imagine. We have the opportunity in this campus, because of that large window out to the west that the sun sort of shines in rather brightly sometimes, and whoever's standing in the foyer, I can see their silhouette from far off. And so there's Saul in the mouth of the cave with his robe covering his feet, and there's 600 dudes back in the inside going, Lord, that's the king. It's quite a vision that the text is preparing for us, okay? David's men, 600 strong, just so happened to be tucked way back in the deep recesses of this stronghold cave. And the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you. This is the day the Lord has made, bro. The Lord is good. It's time to act. Clearly, this is God's will. God wills it, David. Here you go. Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him all, or as it shall seem good to you. Hmm. They want action, and they want blood now. And they do something very dangerous. They quote God. Sort of. They are quoting, kind of, what God had said through Jonathan a few chapters earlier, where Jonathan tells David, you shall surely have the kingdom, and my father knows this. It will be delivered into your hand. And they're going, hey, David, you remember when Jonathan told you that? This is that. It's time to act. Seize it. Take it. It's yours. We would say very carefully, we discern God's will through Scripture, through prayer, and through the wise counsel of others. And if the counsel of others and prayer does not adhere to Scripture, we discard it. This sort of sounds familiar to another tempter that appears to Eve in Genesis chapter 3 and says, Now, Eve, did God really say this? And he twists it, quoting God sort of kind of close. The men want action now, and David listens to it, and David takes a little bit of action. At the end of verse 4, it says, Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Saul's obviously, uh, how shall I say, focused and not paying a whole lot of attention. It's not like his robe is like out in the men's locker room. I mean, it's just it's like right there. And David's able to come up reasonably close. And I guess David knows. He cuts the corner off. What's going on there? Well, the corner is kanaf in Hebrew. It's uh, the place where a Jewish man on his robe has 613 strands to remind him of the law of God. Now, earlier, a few chapters previous, Samuel tells Saul that the kingdom will be ripped from you. So many people think that David is cutting the corner off to say, you have disrespected, disregarded the law of God. This is symbolic of the kanaf being torn from you. You have disregarded the law of God, and therefore the kingdom is being taken from you. Later on, the prophet Malachi says that one day the Messiah will come with healing in his kanaf. A better David will come that the corner of his robe is not law, it is healing, it is redemptive recreation. Which is why, 
in the city of Capernaum, there's a woman who's been bleeding for 12 years. She approaches the better David, the son of man, the son of David, and she touches the corner of his robe, the kanaf, and she is healed. David now goes and cuts the corner off of Saul's robe to say, see here, I had you, I had you. But something very interesting happens in verse 5. And afterward, David's heart struck him. Literally, his heart was smote because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He is convicted. What he did was presumptuous and arrogant. It was not what God had for him. Verse 6, he said to his men, The Lord forbid I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. He is immediately cut to the heart, and he is contrite. I should not have done that. And so David, verse 7, the text that I have says in verse 7, and so David persuaded his men with these words. No, 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 no. May it not be. David sa'ak his men. He tore them to pieces. He is violently angry opposing them. They want to go and end this thing right now. And who could blame them? Does it not seem like God has done this and, and, and set the stage? But David, the one who knows the truth, stands against the many. And his temper flares, and he violently tore them, the text says. He opposes them. Sort of reminds me of about a thousand years later when we'll hear of the son of David, the son of man, get violently angry in the temple, overturn tables, and take a whip to some people. He violently opposes them, and this one standing against the 600 subdues them and stops them from doing this deal. So again, there in verse 7, he did not permit them to attack Saul, and Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. Now, the rest of what we're going to get is just a couple monologues. We're going to hear from David, his sort of perspective, and then we'll hear Saul's response. But we don't really get much more narration. What we get is these two sort of addresses. So, in verse 8, we're told this. Afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave, and he called out after Saul, My lord, the king! <laughs> that, that's weird. Uh, and when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. Like, <laughs> Dude, where did you just come from? That's terribly awkward. Where were you this whole time? Oh, man. But David demonstrates reverence. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm. Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. This is a bit strange for us, but let me make sure I make this as clear as I possibly can. During the time of Israel, the kingdom age, the king of Israel represents God to the people of Israel. Bad guy, good guy, it's still, the, it's still sort of the program that is in place. The king of Israel represents God to the people. And to raise your hand against the Lord's anointed was to raise your hand against God himself. This is why, a thousand years later, Jesus will stand trial, and the leaders of Israel say, formally, officially, nationally, we will not have this man as our king. We have no king but Caesar. His blood be on our heads and that of our children. And thus it has been. There was a national, official, formal rejection of Jesus as king, and to reject his king is to reject 
God. So David says, I recognize this. I will not raise my hand against you, even though you are, and I quote, cray-cray, I will not stretch out my hand against you because that's not God's purpose. That is not God's plan. Now, incidentally, as a quick side note, I've had the misfortune of being a part of a number of churches where some pastor or elder or deacon was uh, the recipient of some accusation or allegation. And that minister or elder or deacon or whatever, ministry leader, would usually try to cite this passage as, hey, 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 you are not to lay your hand against the Lord's anointed. You cannot act this way against me. To which I say, hold on a second. You're really going to put yourself in that narrative? First of all, that's about a king, not about a deacon or a pastor or an elder. And secondly, the one that you're trying to relate to, let's see. He was insane, tormented by a demon, and rejected of God. Is that really how you want to be identified? Because we can play that game. Well, that's not what I meant. What I meant is leave me alone. That's a different story. So next time you hear a pastor, whether it's me, probably Mike, maybe Matt, say, don't touch the Lord's anointed, just say, listen, unless you're possessed by a demon, rejected by God, and completely insane, we're going to have this conversation, okay? Enjoy. Now then, verse 9, David said to Saul, why do you listen to the words of men who say, behold, David seeks your harm? Behold, this day, your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave, and some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put my hand against the Lord my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand, for by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I've not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. I will not presume to hold justice or to exact judgment. That's above my pay grade. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. Vengeance is the Lord. There's no question that I have been wronged, but I will not repay evil for evil, blood for blood, which is a sentiment that the Apostle Paul picks up in Romans chapter 12, verse 19, and says, do not take vengeance. That is on the Lord. He will do that. Verse 13, as the proverb of the ancients says, out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog, after a flea. I'm nobody. I'm insignificant. Why are you so threatened? Why are you so afraid? You already know how this is going to go. As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, Is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice, and he wept. David will not take vengeance. He will wait for the Lord to act, which is an astonishing reality when we recognize, when we realize that a thousand years later, God will pour out all his judgment, all of his justice, all of his anger, all of his wrath, all of his holy indignation for the sin of man. And he will pour it out on the son of David. God himself will be the recipient of what his people deserve. So David says, I will not do that. I will wait for vengeance to be exacted. It's not my job. Well, now we're going to get Saul's response in verses 16 and following. Saul weeps. Make no mistake, Saul is going to demonstrate sincerity, authenticity, and contrition. He says in verse 17, he said to David, you are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt with, well with me, and that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now behold, 
I know that you shall surely be king. It's amazing. Jonathan told David earlier, my father knows that you will be king. He knows this. He knows how this story is going to end, and yet he will oppose anyway. Which reminds me of another enemy who knows that Jesus is king, who knows that he will reign forever and ever and ever, and that he has lost, and that he has been defeated, and yet he will always continue until the very end to oppose God and attempt to thwart his plan. We already see this modeled out in the life of Saul. Verse 20, now behold, I know that you shall surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me, and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. Saul, by the way, is completely clear. He's completely contrite. What he says about David is true. What he says about himself is true. What he says about God is true. Just because the messenger is corrupt does not negate the message. I've spoken with a couple of you this week who have had experiences where someone that loved you, led you, guided you, guarded you, taught you, instructed you, discipled you, walked away from the faith or had some indiscretion, and you thought, well, the whole thing that they did, I'm pitching it. It's all worthless now. No, it is not. Saul was a mess, but what Saul said was true. We do not throw out the message because the messenger has an error, because all of us are going to stumble at some point. Saul begs David, please do not cut off my line. That's what ancient kings did. If you became king and displaced another king, you would take that king and you would destroy all of his family so that his descendants could not rise up and later exact revenge. Saul says, please don't do that. And David says, I will never do that. Which is interesting because, again, a thousand years later, the son of David, the better David, the Messiah will come. And he will cut himself off so that our children can enjoy and experience his presence and peace forever. Because that's the kind of king that he is. Swear to me, therefore, verse 21, by the Lord that you will not cut off my offspring after me and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul. Then Saul went home. But David and his men went up to the stronghold. Ah, we think maybe, surely this is the end. It's going to turn out well. It's going to be okay. But we get a hint there at the end of the chapter that it's not going to be okay. Saul returns to his home, and David has to go to the stronghold. He's not able to lay down his arms and return home to Bethlehem. He's not able to lay down his arms and go grab his family who has been stationed in Moab. He has to return to the stronghold because Saul's Clarity will not last. But David teaches us something very important here, and it is this. Again, our big idea for the morning, that there are no shortcuts. There are no shortcuts. David has every opportunity, and it seems to make sense. There is a way that seems right unto a man, but it leads to folly, says the son of David, that is Solomon in Proverbs. So, I want to just extract three sort of principles, three applications or implications for us to think on this week about this text. First one goes like this. God's will must be done God's way. God's will must be done God's way, even if it seems like there might be an easier way, a better way, a funner way, a faster way. No. God's will must be done God's way. One writer, Dale Ralph Davis, he put it this way. He said, the end that God has ordained must be reached by the means that God approves. The means that God 
ordained must be reached by the means that God approved. Now, you've heard it said, when God closes a door, he opens a, you nailed it, you bunch of heretics. Of course, that's right. And we say that a lot because we think, okay, well, this is the way God wanted it to go. Didn't happen that way. And so I'm going to take prerogative and do it this way. And that's when it happens. That's exactly when it happens when we sense that a door is closed and we really want something or we think that God has promised us a thing, we take action and we justify. What does it mean to justify? Justify means to declare righteous. Some action that we do, we want it to be God's idea. We declare it righteous because down deep in our depravity, we want to be God. We want to have authority and rule over our life. And so we declare things righteous. This is what happens in the nanosecond and the power of our flesh. But this text comes along and correctly changes that philosophy. And it says this, when a door is closed and God has promised that you will walk through, wait for the door to reopen. Now, I know that's not as clever, and it won't go on a needlepoint in your hallway like he closes the door, he opens the window. I know that's easier to say, but this is truth. When a door is closed and God has promised that you will walk through, wait for the door to reopen because there are no shortcuts. Yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but I really want that. I really want this. I really want to experience that and to feel that. Okay, well, then wait for God's promise because he has that for you as your creator, and he knows best. But I want it right now. Right, because you're seven, just like I am. But when there is a door closed and God has promised that you will walk through, wait for the door to reopen. Which leads me to my second point of application. It goes like this. Waiting on God does not have to be joyless. If we wait for that door to reopen, then it doesn't have to be a joyless waiting. I cannot tell you how many things I read this week, well-meaning commentators, preachers, and scholars writing about this, saying, yes, we just have to wait on the Lord. We just got to we just got to grip it and rip it and just sort of grit our teeth. And that's the Christian life of just waiting. That's hard. Just waiting. And I thought, that's, that's sort of true. We are to abide and to hold up. But wait a minute. That sort of misses the point. If it's all to be done in my strength and my power and my conscious, deliberate gritting it out, I will last about 30 seconds. Man, I don't have that kind of strength. And what's worse is it totally misunderstands the point. Thinking that way that I just have to go through life waiting is a total swing and a miss, not understanding of what grace is. It treats God as though he's generally disinterested, probably disappointed, potentially ornery, and generally busy with that thing in Syria. But he'll get to you when he can. That's not what God is like. He loves you and he's crazy for you. And if he has delayed, then the maker of you and that promise and that situation is for your good. So that you will more fully understand, appreciate, and rise into the crown that he is holding over your head. And to seize the crown prematurely is to miss the blessing that he has made. It doesn't have to be joyless. To, to treat God that way is to, to treat God like he's some transactional book of karma. That I have to do this so that he does this, so that I do this, so that he does this. What a beat down. Incidentally, that's the content of every other system of religion in the world. And it is a chain. But the wonder of grace says, it is finished. I love you. I've given you every good and perfect thing you need for life and godliness in Christ. And while we wait, we have the privilege and the prerogative to draw near to a person. Not to a, well, I guess I just have to keep 
going through this life and saying that it sucks to anybody that will listen. Oh, that's great evangelism. That's a great call. You should totally be like that. No, it does not have to be joyless. In fact, David, many years later, will write a psalm about his time in the cave of En Gedi as he is waiting for God to reopen the door. David actually writes Psalm 27, Psalm 57, Psalm 58, and Psalm 63, all talking about his time running from Saul in the wilderness. In Psalm 27, verse 14, a well-known passage, you probably know it, David writes this, Psalm 27, 14, Wait for the Lord, be strong, and let your heart take courage. In case you forgot the first time, wait for the Lord. Let your heart take courage. He is good, and he really does have a wonderful plan for your life. And when we take presumption, and we are so arrogant to think, I can do this better, faster than you, God, we miss his blessing. Now, this brings me to a third point, which is a little bit different, but I think we can take this right from this text. It goes like this. Perseverance is the proof of salvation. Perseverance is the proof of salvation. Saul looks like he experiences an incredible turnaround in repentance. He's clear-headed. He is contrite. And what he says about God and himself and David is all true. And yet, it does not last. It is fleeting. How can we tell if someone actually has a legitimate conversion experience? Well, of course, it's because they glow. No, that would be weird. It doesn't happen. That's because they can suddenly quote things in King James. No, that would be cool, but not reliable. Eugene Peterson said the conversion, that faith is a long obedience in the same direction. We know that Saul's does not stick. Just a couple chapters forward, very quickly, in 1 Samuel chapter 26, just verses 1 and 2, look what happens. 1 Samuel chapter 26, verses 1 and 2. After this wonderful speech that Saul gives, listen to his reaction. Then the Ziphites came to Saul at Gibeah, same thing has already happened in in chapter 23, saying, Is not David hiding himself in the hill of Hakilah, which is on the east of Yeshimon? So Saul arose and went down to the wilderness of Ziph with 3,000 chosen men of Israel to seek David in the wilderness of Ziph. He does the exact same thing all over again. No, conversion is a long obedience in the same direction. Perseverance is the proof of faith. Happens in our day and age. People will come and say, hey, I just accepted Christ, I want to get baptized, I want to get involved in the church, and I want to be an elder. I'm like, whoa, it's just 2 o'clock. How'd that happen? Like, let's, let's settle down a little bit and let's just see what happens. Let's see what the Lord does. Let's see how you respond when he heats you up. We want, to, we want to test those things. And so we would say that faith is not a momentary point in one's history. It is a point and a process by which a person is brought into right relationship with God. And there are three elements to the molecule of faith. Three ingredients in the casserole of faith, if you will. The first goes like this. It is content, is knowledge. We say we believe, but what is it that we believe? Just saying we believe is not enough. We believe, and the thing that we believe is Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, fully God, fully man. That he paid the wages of sin, which is death. He fulfilled the demands of the law, which is perfection. Jesus accomplished that in his earthly ministry. He lived, he died, he was buried. He rose again on the third day. He ministered in person, seen by 500 people. He ascended, he sent the Holy Spirit. That's what we believe. That's the content of our faith. We can't just say, I believe. James says, even demons believe, and they're demons. There's something that we believe. The second piece of faith is assent. We agree. Like that thing the Bible says happened, I believe it. I think it's right. 
The Bible says that Jesus is alive and that he's still alive. And I believe it. I agree with that. Might not understand it. Can't explain to you the science behind it. Don't have a DVD of it, but I agree with it. So we have knowledge. We have assent. And the third piece is trust. We actually line up our lives and live out our lives as if it were true. That's what faith is. Saul does not have that. For those who are called according to the faith, we follow with no shortcuts. You know, one of my favorite chapters in the Bible is Hebrews 11, what we call the Hall of Faith. And it's all these losers who, like me, have pumpkin squeezins on them who fell face first because they tried to take shortcuts. Abraham, Lot, Samson, they all took shortcuts, and yet they are in the hall of faith. Why? Because they trusted the one who paid the penalty for their shortcut. This is our Jesus. This is our King of kings and our Lord of lords. But Hebrews also says this king who cares, this champion who has died, and this big brother who is proud of us. It's reminding us that Jesus, like David, went through a temptation in the wilderness. Both Matthew 4 and Luke 4 talk about the ultimate temptation that Jesus receives in the wilderness by Satan himself. It's demonstrated as three separate temptations, but really it's just one, and it goes like this. Take a shortcut, take a shortcut, take a shortcut. And Jesus says, I will not. There are no shortcuts. The devil says, you can have all of this glory, all of this land. You can end all the ailments, all the error of all the people. Please just don't go to the cross, and I'll give you the crown. Jesus says, there is no crown without the cross. And the gospel says, we don't ever have to experience the cross because he did, but he's willing to share the crown. You know, this week we've been talking a little bit about uh, En Gedi. Jesus didn't take a shortcut. He went all the way. He went through with it so that one day he will also come again. And you know what's amazing? En Gedi will come back into the picture. And Gedi is this desert oasis on the western edge of the Dead Sea. But one day when Christ returns, the scriptures say he will come to the Mount of Olives and he will put his foot there and he will split Temple Mount. It'll split east and west and water will flow out of the temple down south to <laughs> En Gedi. It'll get deeper and wider and deeper and wider. And I feel like what's going to happen when that happens, Ezekiel 47 talks about the living water that will flow, the Mayim Chaim. I've got another picture of En Gedi. I think this is sort of what it's going to feel like. There they are. That's our own Ken and Sue Kummerfeld in the springs of En Gedi, getting totally drenched in living water. Ezekiel 47.10 says that the waters will come through En Gedi because the son of David, the Messiah, has returned, and he takes dead things and makes them alive. And that water will flow from En Gedi to the Dead Sea, and it will be alive. And every species of fish that exists will then live in the Dead Sea because that's the kind of thing that Jesus does. Because he was not willing to take a shortcut, but he was willing to take the consequence for those of us who have tried shortcuts. So some of you here this morning, man, you, you, you're still in the midst of some scar tissue for some shortcuts that you attempted. And I just want you to know there's grace for that. The King of Kings has taken the penalty for that. And as we move forward and you are tempted to take a shortcut, yeah, but I want to experience that. I want to experience physical intimacy with another person. Great, get married. Because God intended physical intimacy for a man and a woman and no one else. But I want to experience that. Fine, follow God's plan. Follow the owner's manual or you miss the blessing. 
For those of you here this morning who are not believers, you're still trying to take every shortcut you can find. I just want you to know there is this thing called pumpkin waiting for you. Not really. It's much worse. But we believe that Jesus is the Christ. We agree that he is alive, and we live our lives as if it were true. We invite you to do the same. For the rest of you, perhaps you've kind of gotten in a rut of following the path of least resistance. I just want to encourage you to wait with joy and to persevere. It's worth it. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for who you are, for what you have done in Christ, to redeem us to yourself and to one another. Father, we pray that you would move irresistibly by your spirit in the life of anyone here that does not know you, that they would step out of death into life and into a saving knowledge of your son, Jesus, the true son of David, the king of kings and the Lord of lords who is alive. Father, for the rest of us who have been believers for a very long time, but are also dealing with the wreckage of shortcuts here and there. Thank you for forgiveness and grace. And would you give us wisdom by your spirit, by your word, and by your people to wait patiently on the Lord. Again, I say, may we wait patiently and joyfully on you. We pray all these things the only way we can, in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at BethelBible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.